Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Gray Zone live stream. I'm Anya Parampil here with Max Blumenthal. And our guest today in a world full of Dan's, I think Dan Kovalik is my favorite. He's a human rights lawyer and author of many books, including uh, the most recent, Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. But he's someone who's traveled all over the world, very connected to social movements across the planet and and knows a lot and has, has more recently, as some of you may have seen, interrupted or confronted rather quite quite politely U.S. Senator John Fetterman about his failure to call for a Gaza ceasefire. We'll watch that clip shortly. But Dan, welcome to the Gray Zone. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. I love your show. Well, we love you too. The feeling is mutual. And, uh, you know, it's usually we're jolly people having a good time when we're hanging out and talking, but it's hard to do that with everything that has happened for the past month. Really, when Halloween came around yesterday, I realized that October had just completely disappeared because of what happened on October 7th and everything that's come since. Uh, for me, it's been kind of just a blur every day getting up and shocked that the atrocity of yesterday somehow Israel manages to top and after weeks of targeting civilians, churches, hospitals, yesterday Israel bombed a refugee camp, the largest refugee camp in Gaza, and followed up with strikes today. I'm sure people have seen some of those updates, Max. Before we get Dan's thoughts on this, I thought it would be uh, worth showing the Wolf Blitzer clip, or I'm sorry, the Abby Phillip clip, uh, where she's talking to Senator Lindsey Graham about this this bombing. And uh, really, I think, and Dan, and we can get into this afterwards, that this attack by Israel floored even some of the most pro-Israel elements in US media. And yet, listen to how even to now, someone like Senator Lindsey Graham will defend Israel's massacre of civilians. Yeah, Lindsey Graham was on with Abby Phillip, who had previously been pretty much in lockstep with the rest of CNN defending Israel's assault on Gaza. And she finally asked some critical questions of one of the biggest warmongers in Congress, Lindsey Graham. Is there a threshold for you, and do you think there should be one for the United States government, at which the U.S. would say, Let, let's hold off for a second in terms of civilian casualties? Uh, is, I, there, I, is there a point at no, which no. you would start to question? No, I, if somebody asked us after World War II, is there a limit what you would do to make sure that Japan and Germany don't conquer the world? Is there any limit <laughs> what Israel should do to the people who are trying to slaughter the Jews? The answer is no, there is no limit, but here's what you need to do, be smart. Let's try to limit civilian casualties the best we can. Let's put humanitarian aid in areas that protect the innocent. I'm all for that, but this idea that Israel has to apologize for attacking Hamas, who's embedded with their own population, needs to stop. The goal is to destroy Hamas. Hamas is creating these casualties, not Israel. I don't think anyone's civilian casualties. Is there a 
So yeah, that pretty much no limit on what can be done there. And I think before we, uh, Dan, before, before, uh, we ask you to weigh in, I think we should just, uh, take in the enormity of this bombing and just see what it actually looked like. Um, because Israel dropped something like six, 2000 pound bombs in the middle of a refugee camp in one of the most densely populated places on the planet. And this is what it looks like. I don't speak Arabic, but I know that great numbers of martyrs are dead. And the number is as much as 400. So that's what Lindsey Graham was not only defending, but saying he'd be willing to see much more of every day, day after day. And, you know, we have to do what we did to Germany and Japan, which was essentially nuke them. Yeah. And of course, and, and, and also he said, you know, but but they have to be smart. I mean, so he doesn't even acknowledge that there might be moral or legal limits to what they're doing. Only pragmatic ones. Right. Uh, it's just it's shocking to me. I think he, Lindsey Graham's a you know, I think he's a devout or would claim to be a devout Christian or whatever. But there's no moral breaks on this or legal breaks, according to him. And clearly, according to most people in Washington, as far as I can tell. And what do you what do you think of what is your reaction when you hear him actually comparing up and what Israel is doing to what the West or what the U.S. and its allies did to Germany and Japan during World War II as a positive or justification for what's happening. I mean, are the is our response to Germany and Japan regarded as a historical success or something that was good for the people of either of those countries? Right. No, I think that any legal, you know, legal scar scholar who's honest will tell you that the types of bombings we're seeing on Gaza, if you compare them to the same type of bombings in World War II, you'd be looking at the bombing of Dresden, which we know some of the Israeli leaders have said they're going to bomb Gaza like Dresden. Well, that was seen rightly as a war crime because that was, you know, uh, did not have any military value, that city. It, it was just punishing civilians. In fact, I'll tell you a little story that was told to me. You may or may not know this. After World War II, every leader... British leader, uh, military leader, you know, top leader of their uh, respective forces, naval, army, uh, got the uh, uh, highest uh, award of state, which I think is the uh, order of the um, empire. In any case, except the head of the Air Force, because he was the one that led the bombing in Dresden and the people of Britain were horrified by that. I mean, even the people of Britain who had been bombed by, by Nazi Germany understood that was wrong. And then, of course, the other analogous uh, bombings would be Hiroshima, Hiroshima Nagasaki, which, again, most historians now believe were not necessary to end the war, that the Japanese were ready to surrender, that those bombings were probably carried out 
for two reasons. One, to show the Soviet Union that the U.S. had nuclear weapons that they were willing to use. So that was really the opening salvo of the Cold War as opposed to the end of World War II. Uh, and also, uh, they didn't want the Japanese to surrender to Stalin because um, at that point, the Soviet Union was um, about to engage uh, a in a mass invasion of Japan. So neither of those are legitimate justifications for, again, basically wiping two cities off the map. So first of all, uh, when he says, well, does, did anyone say we should have limits in fighting the Nazis? Yes, everyone believed that. I mean, again, you, you don't attack civilians to do that. But second, of course, the Palestinians aren't Nazis. You know, we have to also say, and they don't even have the ability to threaten Israel in that way. The fact that Israel can, first of all, bomb at will on Gaza, right, is only the case because the Palestinians have no air force. They have some air defenses, but very limited. And moreover, you know, the fact that Israel can cut off their water, their food and their medicine shows how much control Israel has over that territory. Again, there's no analogy between uh, that and the war against Nazi Germany. So, I mean, I, it, on every turn, his, his reasoning does not hold up at all. And I just want to highlight this clip from Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. I just sent it to you, Max, during a recent press conference. This is how warped and sick the mind of the Israeli establishment that is overseeing this war actually is. Here he is just justifying in some way, attempting to hitting hospitals again by evoking Dresden. Will do something that civilized countries will never do. And civilized countries will make every effort to prevent this. And I'll give you one example. And I'll end with that because I have to go to uh, manage this war and lead it. In 1944, the Royal Air Force bombed the Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen. It's a perfectly legitimate target. But the British pilots missed. And instead of the Gestapo headquarters, they hit a children's hospital nearby. And I think 84 children were hardly burned to death. That is not a war crime. That is not something you blame Britain for doing. That was a legitimate act of war with tragic consequences that accompany such legitimate actions. And you didn't tell the allies, don't stamp out Nazism because of such tragic consequences. They went to the end because they knew that the future of our civilization was at stake. Well, I'm telling you right now that the future of our civilization is at stake. The future of our civilization is at stake, and that's why we need to bomb lots of children. It is not a war crime. That's, that's our civilization right there. Well, that's the irony. This the Invoking all this, the, these notions of civilization, of, of likeness versus darkness, to justify... I mean, I believe the worst, certainly worst televised in, in videotape crimes we've seen in our lifetime. I mean, yep. I've never yeah. seen anything like this. Um, yeah, I'm 55 years old. Um, I've seen a lot in my day. I've never seen this kind of carnage uh, on, on TV. Again, on my video screen, I'm, you know, almost 
all day, every day. Um, if that's what civilization is, then then I don't want to be a part of it, right? I mean, if that's what passes for civilization. Well, it's also dangerous, I think, for the Israelis to keep making that comment. If they want to keep making this comment that this is about good versus evil and light versus darkness, most people are going to look at the situation and see very clearly that Israel is the evil. Israel is the darkness. I mean, the propaganda, the media, the establishment can try and warp the narrative all they want. But I, at least, am assessing this time around, they're failing. I, I think while I, I agree with you, this is the worst thing I have ever seen just in terms of a war. It also is the first time that I've seen real criticism of Israel break through. And Israel has gone so far that I think anyone who is not for because of their upbringing or because of the amount of propaganda that we get in the United States, just totally pro-Zionist, anyone else who sees what's going on is going to wake up and have a negative reaction to, to the Israeli side. So light and darkness, Netanyahu, all you're doing with that kind of language is asserting to most people that Israel is the darkness, I think. Well, we've always seen uh, Israel. We always think Israel's taken it too far this time. I thought that during the period of Ariel Sharon and the destruction of the Janine refugee camp, and then these military style assaults, on the civilian population of the Gaza Strip with 500 pound, 2000 pound bombs began. And I thought they're taking it too far with Operation Cast Lead. They're taking it too far with Operation Protective Edge when they killed 600 women and children. And now, again, uh, the moral depravity of Israel has expanded in broad daylight with unprecedented access to video of their crimes. Uh, through social media and uh, you know Twitter, really uh, opening it up, opening it up. Um, there's totally unfettered access to everything, including these new torture videos that have appeared from the West Bank and Hebron, showing Israeli troops torturing Palestinians, reenacting the propaganda that they heard about what Hamas did on October 7th, and really showcasing the sadism of their society. But one thing that Israel's also doing here, when Netanyahu makes those comments is what their former head of the former head of the Israeli military's um, legal division, um, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Reisner said, is to appeal to the United States military in that he said, international law progresses through violations. In other words, we are waging a war on international law and showing how toothless it is and how feckless international institutions are. And in doing so, we reduce the risk of you getting punished, USA, when you go and commit violations in Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, wherever you want to go. So Israel's kind of the leading edge for the West right now and for NATO as well and for Ukraine in committing these violations and being able to get away with it. And I think that's something that does appeal to many people in the Pentagon and in Brussels as well. Yeah. Did you see a couple things? I mean, just to follow up on that. I saw a very good tweet by by a, a professor of human rights out of Lebanon, and I I taught human right international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh Law School for eleven years, and I retweeted it and said I agreed with him. What he said is, "Hey, to all my students I've taught international law to over the years, I'm sorry because I taught it seriously and I 
I taught it like it should be followed. And obviously it's not, you know, obviously it's not followed. And we're seeing that in Gaza. You know, basically he was saying, you know, hey, you know, I taught you that these were real laws that people followed. And that's not true. Everything I've done in teaching is meaningless. And by the way, I started feeling that fairly quickly into teaching international human rights law for that reason, because, you know, you realize quickly what is good for the goose is not good for the gander, right? You know, you have the, like the Rwanda war crimes tribunal and Yugoslavia war crimes tribunal. There's never a war crimes tribunal for the United States or for France, right? Um, it's yeah. selective justice. And selective justice is not justice at all. That's not a rule of law. That That's the rule of the jungle. So, and then you saw a guy, and I'm trying to remember what, what he resigned from. I thought it was a UN body or something, signed a letter also saying, look, I, you're useless, United Nations. You're supposed to be enforcing international human rights. You're supposed to be maintaining international, you know, um, yeah, this is the New York office director, Craig Mokhyber, uh, yeah. who resigned and slammed the UN and said, this is a textbook case of genocide. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project in Palestine has entered its final phase toward the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine. And essentially the UN is completely useless along with this whole genocide prevention industry and standing up to it. If anything, much of the genocide prevention industry was established by or to serve the interests of the Israel lobby. And so he's calling out this colossal fraud and resigning as so many other people should be doing at the UN, but aren't Anya. I know you've been watching the UN pretty closely. Uh, what are yes. your thoughts? Yeah, that's been a focus of mine since this started following the debate at the General Assembly and Security Council, which is just dragged on and on and on and delivered no results. And I, th I tweeted yesterday, I, I cover the UN, I've covered the UN closely over the years. I, I have good relationships with diplomats that work from all different countries, every continent at the UN. And I have a lot of respect for the people who work there. And I have a lot of respect for people who, work every day to try and make peaceful solutions for the world's problems. And that is supposed to be the forum. The UN is supposed to be the forum created just for that, for the, the after World War II, the world coming together and saying, where can we, how, how can we establish a network? How can we establish rules, but also a, a, a just a mechanism for us to come together and try to prevent something like this from happening again in the future. And of course, it's failed multiple times, whether throughout US aggressions in Vietnam or Iraq. But this case in particular, what we're seeing right now in Gaza, I think really just blew the whole UN system and never again. And yeah, genocide prevention industry, it blew it out of the water. It is just exposed, it is completely toothless with no ability to actually implement the law that it that it stands for and so it starts to just feel as if all of this talk about international law is just theory i mean there's no way to actually make sure that israel is held accountable the whole system is rigged so that there's veto and there's no actual authority and then 
it's it's it, it just I you watch them day after day come and sit in their suits and some people giving speeches as if this is their moment in history and not as if it's it, it's a time to actually act and and that there aren't just children dying every day dozens that we just see these videos it's like it's not even happening it's like they're just in this in this separate like dimension where they just can talk about uh, rules and have a debate as if there's there's no real reality or material uh, 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 war that they're preventing. I mean, it's just I I was in a debate with a friend of mine yesterday because I I'm I'm kind of giving up faith in the UN at all, Dan. I I did want it to have. I've always kept hope that it would live up to its its mission and the vision that the the diplomats who created it had, but not only has it failed to defend the ter ter territorial sovereignty, political independence, and self-determination of people all throughout its history, in this case of Gaza, you know, I don't use the word genocide or Holocaust lightly. I understand that those are buzzwords. I don't know what else to call this. Yeah, no, this is a genocide. It absolutely is. And I agree with you. I mean, obviously, I got into international human rights because I, I thought it was maybe a mechanism, again, to prevent these types of crimes. Um, and I also believed for a long time that the UN at least had the potential to do its job, which is to maintain international peace and security. That's its first task uh, through the Security Council but also to protect human rights and yeah, to prevent genocide. The Genocide Convention, which was passed in 1948, ironically, the year of the Nakba as well, um, you know, was the first human rights convention ever agreed to, right? Um, and it was, it was supposed to be the red line that you weren't supposed to cross, right, is genocide, and yet it is being crossed. And yeah, I'll just say that in terms of the UN's futility, it needs to be pointed out that the United States in particular has had a surgical dismantling of the United Nations since the UN began, right? Beginning with the attack on Korea in 1950, the overthrow of our Benz in 1954, which the, General, the Secretary General of the UN at that time said was the greatest blow to the UN at that time and how the U.S. manipulated the U.N. to get its way uh, to do what it did in, in Guatemala. Of course, the war in Vietnam. Uh, but then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, Clinton, Bill Clinton really went to town very, and he was very honest that he wanted to attack the former Yugoslavia in 1999 in part to show the world he could do it without Security Council authorization. He wanted to undermine the Security Council in the United Nations, and he did it. And the U.S. has continued to do that, again, very intentionally over the years. So what we're seeing in terms of the U.N.'s complete inability to handle this situation is not accidental. It's been purposeful. It's been clinical. And the U.S. is largely responsible for that. And so the, the the response is resistance. Um, this is why Hamas exists and is popular. This is why the IRGC has uh, been able to establish alliances 
across the Middle East is because of the sense that there's not going to be any international institution intervening to prevent Israel's violent wrath from touching everyone in that region. And so it's very clear to me now, as these institutions fail before our eyes and as they've been corrupted systematically for decades, that this will be settled through force. And that's yes. a pretty unfortunate conclusion. Yeah, I, well, and that's the that is the decision of the Israelis, evidently, especially yeah. they're the ones at the UN saying that they don't want to cease fire. Well, then what are you asking for? Where does all of this lead? Uh, the but I I just wanted to emphasize, Dan, you you brought up a good point about the UN, just from its inception, really the the contradiction that existed or. First of all, the fact that it immediately provided cover was the cover for the U.S. invasion of Korea, which was supposed to be, of course, what the U.N. was there to prevent, an encroachment on the territorial integrity of a sovereign country. Well, now we have U.N. forces going in order to uh, save the Korean people, and that's how MacArthur and the United States got, got to the peninsula. And then in 1948, actually creating the state of Israel, it's completely infringing on the territorial sovereignty, self-determination and territorial integrity and freedom of the Palestinian people, just completely erasing the Palestinian state and creating a fake state. I mean, that for that to happen in 1948, essentially in the uh, infant years of, of the United Nations, I guess that should have sent us a signal that the organization for everything that it claimed to stand for could also be uh, weaponized by the the kind of forces that were colonial and responsible for driving the second world war to begin with so it's it's tricky because there were diplomats from the soviet union and all over the world involved in creating the un and trying to and and establish this 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 forum for international diplomatic exchange but at the same time, there were very wealthy elite European interests, whether it's the Rockefellers or elite European families in, in uh, across the Atlantic. These were the, the the families that, for example, gave the UN its home. The UN General Assembly building in New York City was donated to the UN by the Rockefeller family because you could say perhaps they wanted to raise the real estate prices of everything else they owned in Manhattan in the area. And also because these very, very powerful elite interests did see the UN as a way to, to get their, their, their spread, I guess their, their hegemonic control. And we see that within institutions such as the world health organization and, and UN groups to this day that are not only controlled by states, but powerful billionaires like Bill Gates. No, absolutely. And again, let's remember that the UN Charter itself, it was signed in San Francisco, California at a time where that was actually still a nice, beautiful city. But that's for that's a discussion for another day. But um, no, I mean, the U.S., I think, believed in it. I mean, or at least the people who agreed to it believed in it. But again, uh, you know, once the Cold War starts, um, and we can argue when it started. I think in in earnest, probably around 1948. Um, all bets were off, and and U.S. foreign policy was hijacked. Uh, you know, by really ultra right wingers. Um, yeah, who, I, yeah. 
Yeah, hijacked is the word. And I, I in his memoir, Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko writes about his experience coming to San Francisco and coming to DC to work on the creation of the UN. And one of the figures that he writes about consistently being there was a young John F. Kennedy, who was actually a journalist at the time covering the UN and its creation and was really eager to be engaged. And he writes so fondly of how Kennedy approached everyone and, you know, look that you can follow that trajectory too when you're talking about a takeover of our government the fact that kennedy could have been a force for that that entry into the world and the us actually believing in a rules based international order and instead we we got a coup on both fronts yeah many opportunities lost um just to, i just want to bring us back to palestine real because the UN, it just gets depressing and we can get lost in the history all well, day. Well, I wanted to make a point about the UN and Palestine specifically um, because uh, there are a number of points that bring us back to the original focus of this discussion, which is the bombing of Jabalia, why it took place, how that fits into international law, and October 7th as well. First of all, there are the, the United Nations in 1974 affirmed uh, or condemned occupation and colonization. It also passed a resolution condemning Zionism as a form of colonialism and racism. And then in 1982, uh, December 1982, the UN passed uh, resolution 3743, which affirms the right of occupied people to resist with armed struggle, the legitimacy of the struggle of peoples for independence, territorial integrity, national unity, and liberation from colonial and foreign domination, and foreign occupation by all available means, including armed struggle, which is why Israel's Hasbara propaganda operatives spend so much time uh, denying and attempting to undermine the concept of settler colonialism itself and the idea that Israel is a settler colonial state because it has implications for international law and it affirms the legitimacy of Palestinians taking up arms to remove themselves from a military occupation. Uh, when the Madrid peace process, when the peace process was in so-called peace process was initiated in Madrid in 1991, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was eventually sort of folded into the Palestinian Authority as Fatah was taken over following a series of assassinations by the Israeli Mossad and the Israeli military of the more uh, militant and intellectually minded Palestinian leaders. The Palestinians were pressured to abandon support for the UN resolution against Zionism, and that was eventually rescinded when the Palestinians agreed to Oslo and Yasser Arafat shook hands with Yitzhak Rabin on the White House lawn. And that was the beginning of the end for the Palestinian armed struggle, which has been re reignited by Hamas in what they call the cradle of resistance in Gaza as the peace process. And it revealed itself as a gigantic colonial sham, which used and exploited United States and international, uh, the United States to shred international law. So we saw the, the shredding, the voluntary shredding of one of the most important UN resolutions by the Palestinian Authority because they thought they were going to get um, some crumbs from the master's table, and that never happened. So that's why we're where we are today. 
the Palestinian Authority, I mean, they, if you, if you, all you have to do is watch the UN to see how they are doing, standing up or speaking on behalf of Palestine. It is not great. I mean, they're, 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 there's a term for them, right, Max? Occupation subcontractors. Yeah, I mean, that's been their role traditionally. And if you look at what's happening in the West Bank right now, you're seeing armed resistance in Tulkarim, which is hard, located in the northern West Bank, right up against the Israeli apartheid wall. There are armed clashes there. And in Jenin, also in the northern West Bank. And these are areas where the Palestinian Authority has essentially been pushed out. And it was the Palestinian Authority trained by General Keith Dayton under a plan overseen by Tony Blair, uh, trained by this U.S. general and a mercenary firm called DynCorp, which extinguished the flames of the Second Intifada in the Balata refugee camp in Nablus by actually killing Palestinian fighters. We even saw two weeks ago in Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority tear gassing Palestinian protesters. So the Palestinian Authority is essentially is revealing its true purpose. And the idea that they're going to come into Gaza after Israel conducts this genocidal regime change war on the back of an Israeli tank, and they're going to be able to put out the flames of resistance is sheer fantasy. It's pure delusion because they are totally discredited among the Palestinian public, whatever people feel about the political leadership of Hamas. Yeah, I think what, you know, there's going to be many, many, many casual political casualties in addition to obviously the, the thousands and thousands of, of lives lost. There's going to be political fallout, political casualties. I think one of the first ones will be the, with the Palestinian Authority, that they, they will not, their rule will, will end in the West Bank. And you, you may see other governments throughout the region fall over this, you know, maybe the one in Egypt, for example, countries that have decided to sell them their soul uh, yes. for help from the United States, you know. Yes, because these these governments can be controlled by the United States, the West and Israel. We can do all we can to keep our grip on the establishment, the elite, but there's nothing we can do to change the street, the hearts and minds of the Arab street and the populations there. And with all of these images coming out, there's no question which direction they're moving toward. And just one more point, I guess, on the UN, it's interesting that the Palestinian Authority are the only ones given a voice even at the UN, considering Hamas is elected to represent uh, Gaza, uh, but yet we never hear from Hamas in the media or in institutions such as the UN. And I, I, would, I would personally be interested in what they had to say during a debate like the one we're seeing uh, at the at the oh. general assembly so Max Hamas was actually elected in the west bank and gaza in palestinian legislative elections and they won the west bank not gaza as far as i remember they were extremely popular in the west bank in cities that had been encircled by the apartheid wall like Kalkilia, totally encircled by the apartheid wall and they were just popular because people wanted something some leverage to push back um and so there hasn't been an election since because the U.S. has said you're not allowed to have an election. <laughs> Emergency law, martial law, Vichy regime. So uh, if there were an election, I assume they would continue to dominate. Anyway, Anya, uh, you were If we ask. could just pull up the Wolf Blitzer clip because yeah. I wanted to get Dan's, Dan's thoughts on how this is all impacting media. Yeah, and I think it's important to watch this clip to understand the logic that Israel's putting forward for 
decimating a refugee camp, killing hundreds in a targeted strike of six 2,000-pound bombs. This is an Israeli army spokesman who happens, Richard Hecht, who happens to be from Scotland, but they're not a colonial state. Yes, I can. We went, we were focused the again on our the target, a senior, senior commander wolf, and we'll be updating uh, you with more data as the hour moves ahead. But even if that uh, uh, Hamas commander was there amidst all those Palestinian refugees who are in that, in that Jabalia refugee camp, Israel still went ahead and, and dropped a bomb there, attempting to kill this Hamas, uh, Hamas, Hamas commander, knowing that a lot of innocent civilians, men, women, and children, presumably would be killed. Is that what I'm hearing? That's not what you're hearing, Wolf. We, again, were focused on this commander, again, who you'll get more data who this man was, uh, killed many, many Israelis. Uh, we're doing everything we can. These are, it's a very complicated battle space. There could be infrastructure there. There could be tunnels there. Uh, we're still looking into it, and we'll give you more data as the hour moves ahead. But you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women, and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days, move south. Civilians that are not involved with Hamas, please move south. Yeah, uh, I'm just uh, trying to get we, a little bit more information. Uh, you knew there were civilians there. You knew there were refugees, all sorts of refugees, but you decided to still drop a bomb on that refugee camp attempting to kill the Hamas commander. By the way, was he killed? I can't confirm yet. I'll, there'll be more uh, updated. He, yes, we know that he was killed. Um, about the civilians there, we're doing everything we can. He can't confirm. He doesn't yeah, know, but he uh, knows that he was killed. And then they dropped another eight tons of bombs today. So query whether whether who that was aimed at. And again, this is incredible. You, you, you try to kill, allegedly try to kill one person with six tons of bombs? It doesn't even make sense, of course. And he said this is an inevitable tragedy of war. Well, the point of international humanitarian law, as best codified in the Geneva Conventions, is to prevent these tragedies of war by making, you know, requiring states to not indiscriminately attack and bomb civilian areas. They're supposed to try to take great pains, in fact, to protect civilian life here. Of course, they've done the opposite. And it, it has to be pointed out that the West, for a very long time, certainly going back to World War II, but certainly after World War II, going back to Korea, has over-relied on aerial bombings for their, for their war uh, uh, strategy. And what aerial bombings will always do is punish the civilian population. They're not targeted, right? If you really wanted to go after one person um, in a way that legally, so that you're not injuring and killing that many civilians, you would use ground troops or ground forces to do that. But the West never wants to do that. Because I'm sorry, they're cowards. They don't want to engage in hand-to-hand -hand battle with people. They'd rather just bomb people from the air and bomb people who don't have an air force.
as they did in Korea and Vietnam and, and, and Iraq and, and, uh, and over and over. And, and I, I think it's, it bears pointing out that if you look at how the Russians are prosecuting the war in Ukraine, they are not relying heavily on air power. They are relying on ground troops. And that's why the war is taking long. And they're doing it because they don't want to kill a lot of civilians, you know, and that has to be pointed out. And they're losing a lot of soldiers as a result, which Israel seems unwilling to do. That's exactly right. And that's what will happen. If you use ground troops, you will lose more soldiers, but you will also protect civilian lives. And again, the Russians are willing to do that. And I think that has to be pointed out when we hear all these things about Putin being a madman and all that. Uh, you have to look at how these two different wars are being prosecuted in, in a very different way. Yeah, he did not carpet bomb Kiev. No. Or Mariupol. Mariupol was the only real ugly theater of urban combat, and it was that was related to the denazification objective because Mariupol was controlled by the Azov Battalion. Do you think it could uh, become compared to what we're seeing in Gaza right now? Uh, well, absolutely. Well, the, the civilian corridors were prioritized, and much of the population, Dan, as you know, went east. Right. To, and you've been to Donbass, you've been to Donetsk. So many people from Mariupol who are ethnic Russian who suffered under the regime that was set up there under the neo-nazi azov battalion left but yeah by the, then it was the, by then it really was like hamas if, if, if that's how we're going to categorize it like it was just the azov battalion by the time the the strikes came in israel is obviously not showing any regard for human life bombing people in the safe zones bombing not allowing any aid in not allowing people out rough the rafa crossing has just opened for the first time today and it's very limited in the south and, so yeah it's a great point and this is the let me can i, can I just say one thing uh i th i have an idea of who the target was in jabalia and who they keep trying to kill and it shows the desperation of the israeli military i just wanted to make this point and we'll talk about it more towards the end of this conversation because i want to talk about the al-qassam brigades what they really are are doing and Israel's actually starting to lose a lot of soldiers in, in the last 48 hours. They've lost many soldiers in Gaza. I think they tried to kill Mohammed Daif, who is the commander of the Al-Qassam brigades and has survived at least five assassination attempts. He's severely disfigured. He spent time actually in Egypt recovering from one assassination attempt. A helicopter bombed his car and killed his driver. Um, he's partially blinded. No one's seen a. If there's only maybe one image circulating of him anywhere. Uh, he doesn't communicate on phones. He speaks only through uh, close associates. And I think through their collaborator network, they thought they found him in this camp. And they were so desperate to eliminate a high level target, to demoralize the resistance in Gaza, that they were willing to destroy the entire camp, kill hundreds of people just to get who someone who would be the most high value target. That's what I think they're trying to do there. And they don't even know if they've done it. So I wanted to put that on the record. Ever since October 7th, when the Israelis were embarrassed by the security failure that 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 allowed Hamas to come in and capture these, these hostages, we've been hearing, and I heard it on mainstream media constantly, that 
oh, even though this was a security failure and we need to ask questions about what happened eventually, we know, we have no doubt that the Israeli military is the most advanced in the world, that they have these especially, particularly special, special operations forces that can go in. I heard so many references to the raid in Entebbe that killed Netanyahu's brother, but you would think that would be precisely the kind of operation to use special forces. If you think that you're going to go in and actually get a high level commander, that would be the way to do it. And if they succeeded in that way, they would look like, ooh, a Hollywood movie. They But then we know that they can't do it. And so these cowards are dropping tens of thousands of pounds of bombs on on just children and women and and also men it, we emphasize women and children a lot but the men that are dying too are not combatants their fathers their grandfathers they're they are all they they are equal in their humanity to the women and children that that are dying and so the israeli paper tiger i think has been completely exposed here and and the 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 bombing of the refugee camp really, I think, was the the period, the dot. They, at the they've end. they've six, they've won the war on Palestinian babies. Uh, they've beaten a lot of babies in combat, but right now Israel is is not performing very well in the field. It's neat, It's begging the U.S. to rescue it again and again. And it's not a dependable ally for the United States. It's it, Israel itself is the world's biggest security failure, just as Zionism is the world's biggest intelligence failure. And probably the biggest security threat, too. I mean, if anybody in the world's ready to press the nuclear button, I think it would be the Israelis before anyone else. Dan, uh, I want to move to your uh, activism from your analysis, your history, your, your work as a historian as a scholar of history, you have so many books. I mean, I could fill my entire shelf behind me with your book <laughs> and your, your journalism. I mean, you've been on the front lines in Dunbass in recent months. And now um, it seems you're, I, we were talking before the show, you're going to do another book on Palestine this time. Yes. Yes. To try to kind of catch up with events that are happening. Yes. Well, I want to uh, highlight your activism because you actually ran into one of the biggest cheerleaders for Israel's assault in the Senate. Uh, maybe not the most charismatic cheerleader, but one of the most physically largest and uh, at least very vocal online. It's Senator John Fetterman and me and Anya actually were driving by the U.S. Capitol the other day and we saw him kind of ambling up the street in his hoodie. We didn't He's have hard to be... miss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I didn't have time to go uh, speak to him and get assaulted as you were, but... Uh, Dan, you were you confronted That's John what Fetterman. Yeah, and... can I can I give you the setup of it before we watch it? Or yeah. yeah, 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 set it up. So for first us. of all, this was a ticketed event. Okay, this it wasn't like I went up to him at a restaurant where he was sitting with his family and bothered him. I had a ticket for this event. It was an event hosted by Fetterman for a woman named Sarah Inamorato who's running for county council here, who I support, by the way. I already voted for her. Maryland. You're in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, the public was invited to buy a ticket to support Sarah. And it was a, an event hosted, as it said, by Senator Fetterman. And so I bought a ticket for $25 and I went to the event and I went and spoke with... Um, 
Senator Fetterman, and now you can watch that interaction. The entire interaction is captured in that video. So thank you for that setup. And now here's Dan with Senator Fetterman. I voted for him. I'm sorry, this is a democracy. It absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, but kind of, sort of. Why? 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed. Half of children. The Pope's calling for a ceasefire. The UN is calling for it. I'm just asking you. You're a good guy. I voted for you. I know you're a nice guy. This is important. Here, can I give you a call? I love how he's subverted. Oh, he's subverted comes on. I'm a big Stones fan, by the way, so that was really nice for me. I, that guy, well, are they? Why are they? Why is that guy also dressed like an adult toddler? Yeah, he's dressed like Fetterman. He, he's he's dressed like Fetterman. So, who was that? Who ended up throwing you out? Was it someone part of his entourage or just? As I understand it, as I have learned, I believe at least Fetterman's office is claiming he is the owner of that establishment. But he clearly was also working very closely with Fetterman, basically to provide security for him uh, as well. Okay, see, watch Fetterman's eyes closely. His, his hands. He's not moving his hands. And his eyes I'm sorry, this is a democracy. It absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, but kind of, sort of. Why? His eyes are focused elsewhere because he's appealing for help. Thousand people in Gaza have been killed. Half of children. The Pope's calling for a ceasefire. The UN is called for it. And he's totally frozen. I'm just asking you. You're a good guy. I voted for you. I know you're a nice guy. This is important. And look, he just goes, okay. And it's like, okay, take this guy out. Destroy him. Yeah. Throw out the trash. Throw the bum out. And Dan, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> I just want to say people who don't know you, you're just one of the nicest like people. And in person, you're like, you just have this very warm, sweet energy. And it comes across in there in that clip because you're being so polite to him. And yet they just couldn't even wait two minutes before laying a hand on you. Yeah, no, that the whole video is 70 seconds. No, it's true. And, and by the way, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. You know, um, can I just say something? Because I woke up this morning or I woke up in the middle of the night and I was thinking to myself, you know, I went to Columbia Law School. You know, at one point I, I thought I was going to be kind of a respectable guy and I'd wear a suit. And, you know, now I'm being thrown out of a bar in West Homestead, Pennsylvania. By a senator who's not even wearing a suit. Right. By a guy who's yeah, not wearing a suit. And it's just like, you know, I've become kind of a gonzo lawyer or something like that, you know, but, and I'm waxing philosophical, but then, you know, then I think, but who are the respectable people, you know, Blinken, you know, I mean, it's just like in a world, in a country where the respectable are war criminals, I guess that's not what I want to be. But again, I didn't envision that this was going to be my whole life, but there you go. So. Oh, I I wanted to be a diplomat, Dan. That's why I moved to D.C. to study international affairs and go straight through the GW to State Department pipeline. But 
yeah, I kind of feel as it's like what there is no room for people like us actually even to try to change the system at this point. I think it's about educating people. That's why I ended up here and we kind of ended up all in the same place. We all ended up in the same place and we all end up finding each other too. Yes. Um, and I, by the way, I, can I just make a pit, pitch for Gray Zone? I mean, I just, when I think about the, the the outlets that have really educated people about things like Palestine, Gray Zone's one of them. And, that, and I do believe that all the protests are happening because people were educated. They were politically prepared for this moment by institutions like Gray Zone. And I, and I mean that, and I appreciate that. And I think that is the best we can do is, is to try to educate people. And, and, and a lot of times, well, and this doesn't apply to you necessarily, but again, thinking about my own life and about that incident, it's not always pretty. Like you can't, you know, you just do your best and you challenge authority and it, and it doesn't end the way you think it's going to end a lot of times, but you roll with the punches and you do your best. Uh, so. Yeah. And it, during periods like this, it's especially painful to just feel powerless and to get up every day. You know, I have a child. I, I think it affects me differently now, even seeing these images since I became a parent. Well, we've had a uh, Anya's frozen a little bit. Yes. So. Well, know. and I can echo that. I mean, I have a family, I have kids, you know, and and of course, sometimes I think, oh, you know, the publicity I get over stuff like this will, you know, negatively impact on my kids and all that. But anyway, Anya, continue. No, just saying that the images out of Palestine would always pull at my heartstrings. It was always the cause like that got me interested in, in international affairs and justice, because I think it's it's the test. The great test of our time is Palestine. And that couldn't be more clear now. But especially now as a mother, I just I really struggled to see these images. But that's why, like you say, the best we can do is what you just did confronting Fetterman. And then, of course, another group that has done great work, Educate Code Pink and also standing up to people. Max, we have the clip of Medea Benjamin, the OG anti-war activist troublemaker in Washington in the belly of the beast confronting Blinken at, at a recent hearing. Let's. Well, we actually, we actually don't have that. I, I have a different clip just because oh. I just don't have that clip there, but uh, it, 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 Tony Blinken, secretary of state, very deeply connected to the Israel lobby and the Biden Clinton machine is uh, test, testified at the Senate yesterday and was interrupted four times. I mean, the interruptions pretty much destroyed his, hearing and we'll talk about kind of the sham that he was putting forward the pr sham um but uh here it here's another interruption that i think was just just really said it all i mean and these are just uh grassroots activists the president and i have both stressed the need for israel to you're the terrorist look at his face I I love it. to operate by the He's so upset. Look at that image. Look at the that image. That's great. Whoever came up with that idea was a genius. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So this was not even like you know a professional activist. It's someone who wanted to come in there. So I was saying, out of pure conscience. 
in our conversations with the calling Israeli Tony Blinken a terrorist operate by the law of war and in accordance with international humanitarian law. And listen to what he's saying. We're going to cooperate with Israel through the laws of war. They always say this, the laws of war. It's like the rules based order. What are they talking about there? Nothing. It literally means nothing when they say the laws of war. We had Liam Cosgrove, our Capitol Hill reporter, go to the Pentagon and ask the spokesman there, John Ryder, what laws of war is Israel following? What laws of war are you asking them to abide by? And he could not and would not answer the question. So that was very telling. And look at this. I mean, the, the image that came out, I think the most enduring image of that hearing was this of those hands. And a professional, you know, photographer from the press pool captured this image. I think yeah. No, it's incredible. And, and you know, this is what we have to do. As, as Anya was saying, look, at this moment, and you, you've seen memes and all this that bear, bear repeating. You know, if you wonder what you would have done in Nazi Germany during the Holocaust and similar situations, well, now's the time for you to come up with an answer. Because well, now you know. Now you know. Yeah, right. If you're doing nothing now, I guess you would have done nothing then. Yeah. This is the time to resist this awful, corrupt, immoral system. People like Blinken and Fetterman and others who are a party to this genocide cannot live comfortably, cannot go out comfortably while this is going on. I yeah, and this, this is uh, the issue. I mean, we were talking about the impact of Palestine on our political perspectives. For me, it was the issue that provided me with the exit ramp from liberalism and the Democratic Party because I just couldn't in good conscience support liberals who cry more over the QAnon shaman getting a guided tour of the U.S. Capitol than over hundreds of children being carpet bombed into oblivion while they sleep in their beds. Uh, it just showed how the complete lack of principle within the Democratic Party, and it also provided me with a path toward a anti-imperialist perspective on the world that Palestine is not going to be liberated in a US unipolar world order, which, and it's unfortunate that so many people who populate the NGOs and publications that, uh, provide the basis for Palestine solidarity and the movement in the West still uphold this point of view that, oh, we just have to defeat the big bad Trump and get the nice Democrats in there. And then we'll have like a foot in the door. And they, I, th I hope that this moment is a wake up call for all of them to see that we are controlled by a unipolar, by a imperial uniparty and that the Democratic Party will not change as long as you keep holding your nose and voting for the lesser evil. Joe Biden, Genocide Joe, has to pay a price. He has to pay a price for this. His approval rating, according to a new Gallup poll, has dropped 11 points among young, young Democrats, which is significant. There's a new poll by, um, I think it's the um, Arab Anti-Discrimination or the, the uh, Arab American Institute, which shows that he is losing uh, his entire base of support among Arab Americans. That is a good thing, but you have to do something to make them know, to let the Biden administration and the Democratic Party elite know that they are paying a price for this. And that means 
boycott. If you're going to boycott Israel, boycott the supporters of Israel, including Biden. And so the one option for that would be to cohere around a protest write-in candidate so that the, when the votes are tabulated, the political elites will see that enough people protested to create a spoiler effect by writing in someone or something that cost Biden the election and that the Democrats cannot get away with this again, because I don't, I think the, the, the Republicans and their base is rock solid support for Israel, Christian Zionist support for Israel. But the Democrats, I mean, we're seeing right now the disparity between the Democratic Party base, its young progressive base and the party elite. And I think that needs to be exploited. That contradiction needs to be exploited by boycotting Joe Biden through a concerted means. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I just don't think anyone of good conscience could vote for Joe Biden at this point. And I saw amongst Democrats, 80% of Democrats support a ceasefire. 80%. Yeah. And a majority of the American people support a ceasefire. Yep. You have protests in the Lone Star State. You have protests in Dallas, Texas. Yep, yep. And there are this many- incredible. Uh, there is a massive Arab American community in Dallas. Um, I mean, this is a chance for Arab Americans and Muslim Americans to flex their political muscle in a way that they haven't before. And when I say write in someone, that's because Cornell West has blown up his campaign. Peter Dow came and just wrecked it, discredited it, took him out of the Green Party where he would have had a spoiler effect. And he's now running independent. I don't know what ballots he's going to be on. Peter Dow has now left the campaign for health reasons. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's disturbing. And you know, you RFK Jr. I mean, we've gone off on what a well. The lack of judgment is what's concerning. The lack of yeah. judgment. So what do you do? I am going to put forward the proposal that we write in a watermelon, melon 2024, and I'm going to be working on this in the coming days because the watermelon has become the symbol of Palestine in countries where the flag is banned, like Germany, because it is oh, interesting. red, green, and black, the symbol, of the colors of the Palestinian flag. Neat. So imagine if we could get 50,000 write-in votes for a melon, uh, or, or 10,000 or more, even in Michigan alone, a swing state, where which has the highest Arab American population, and create a spoiler effect, and then just shove that in the faces of the Democratic Party elite after they lose and say, you cannot get away with this again. We have power. I don't care how much money your genocide APAC lobby has. We still have the right to vote. So that's my idea. And it's a great idea. I welcome feedback. I might have suggested a ham sandwich that even a ham sandwich could be. Well, ham, I, is, ham is haram. So but, <laughs> and not kosher either for right. anti-Zionist Jews. But we'll go for watermelon. I like that. I like that. But no, I mean, uh, I have no intention of voting for Joe Biden. Um, and I don't even think you could claim he's the lesser of any evil. I mean, how more evil can he get? I'm sorry. Like, well, and also he's leading us into World War Three, potentially on three different fronts. I mean, even his basic task of protecting the American people from nuclear conflagration, which at least most presidents, as bad as they were, thought that was like their essential task, he's completely failing at that. I mean, I just don't know what redeeming quality he has that you could point to that would justify any support for him at this point.
And the point that I just want to make is we're talking about Biden as if he's really in charge, but of course, right. we know he's not. And that's why it's so important that a figure like Antony Blinken was targeted, because this is someone that I think is actually running things in the administration. Yes. He, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Newland, And Antony Blinken is someone who in a lot of ways has evaded scrutiny, partially because he's such a drab, dead character. He almost seems like he almost seems less alive than Biden in a way, because he's so he's like his skin color. He's gray. He always looks depressed. He looks like he, he whenever he's with world leaders, he's all awkward and strange. He's he's a very odd cat. But what the the. The interesting thing about him is he was at the forefront of the Ukraine catastrophe, obviously driving that war in the Obama administration within the Biden vice president's office. And then now as secretary of state under Biden, he's one of these consistent players like Sullivan, like Newland. And then he so quickly pivots. And in fact, it's not even a pivot. It seems to be a continuation. There is a link between Ukraine and Israel and the purpose that they each serve, the role that they each serve in the transatlantic, Western, hegemonic global order. And Dan, since you have spent time covering Ukraine, I think you know Russia pretty well and also the perspective of other countries such as Iran. What is it you think about Israel and Ukraine that makes them these two Ps in the imperialist pod that now is really breaking open, for example, the MAGA movement. Cause you see, you see figures that were super critical of Ukraine funding and saying that, you know, we don't have us money to give to Ukrainians totally eager and willing to give even more money, billions of dollars to Israel and to also support Israel in a war that is, in my opinion, way more dangerous than even Ukraine already was. So what is your analysis of just that dynamic and the Israel-Ukraine Blinken kind of worldview? Yeah, well, I think both are beachheads of U.S. empire, both Ukraine and Israel in their, in their respective regions. They are used to project the power of the United States in the regions in which they operate. And um, so in the case of Ukraine, of course, it's a proxy in the U.S.'s war against Russia. And it really has been that for really since World War II, the U.S. has been supporting ultra right wing and fascist forces in Ukraine since World War II to undermine at that point the Soviet Union and then later after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia. And again, by the same token, Israel is a vehicle through which the U.S. projects its power in the Middle East in order to protect, of course, uh, the West's oil interests there. And so um, I think, yeah, as you say, they both serve similar purposes. As you mentioned, while the Republicans, or at least a large part of the Republicans, are maybe mutinying a bit on Ukraine, we'll see how that plays out. Both parties are unanimous uh, in terms of support for Israel. I mentioned before uh, we began broadcasting that uh, you know Mike Johnson, who became Speaker of the House, largely became Speaker uh, because McCarthy was thrown out because he was too willing to give in to the Democrat 
uh, democratic com uh, demands for more military funding for Ukraine. And again, there's a large group of Republicans who don't want to do that. Well, Johnson, just in the last day or so, uh, he put, you know, he approved the $14 billion uh, aid package to Israel to go to the Senate, and he delinked it from Ukraine so at least they could debate over Ukraine. So he is fulfilling that part of his mandate to, to, to give some challenge on Ukraine funding, but he very quickly approved the $14 billion of um, Israeli funding. And, had, and of course, we have to point out that $14 billion represents over three times what the U.S. sends to Israel every year. So this is a huge amount of money. Um, and again, there will be no debate over that. that that's going to pass very it, quickly. It was a very unfortunate timing in terms of like getting a House speaker that is a very devout, radical, evangelical Christian who is clearly not making policy in the interests of the American people or the American nation, but his religious sect. I mean, he speaks quite openly about his dedication to Israel because of religious ideology. Well, what about the interests of U.S. troops that are in Iraq and Syria? Are, are, should they have their lives put at risk because you're an evangelical Christian that thinks Israel is going to usher in the end times in some satanic Armageddon war? Is that something we want to live through? I mean, what, it's really unfortunate. There was just this amazing debate that I thought was a very fascinating moment in American politics over over the the speakership, and I was I was impressed to see Republicans actually standing up and figures like. Uh, Matt Gates throwing their weight around in order to stand up to their party leadership. And then we get someone probably worse than McCarthy. I mean, McCarthy would have been at least more reasonable, though I'm sure. I mean, it all ends up in the same way. It all ends up pro-Israel in the end. But it's just to have an evangelical in there really singing, you know, the end times and Netanyahu's praises is quite, quite frightening. I wanted to highlight the statement Max, the tweet I sent you from Thomas Massey yesterday, because I just thought this was so awesome that he actually said he stood up to people who called him anti-Semitic for rejecting aid, USAID to Israel. He said this baseless smear is meant to intimidate me into voting to send 14 plus billion of your money to a foreign country. Please let APAC know we are broke and these tactics don't work on this congressman. I mean, that is a remarkable statement to hear, especially from a Republican, but from any member of Congress, period, because he's really pulling no punches there. He's just saying it like it is. And and standing up for his principles. And I really, really admire anyone who does that. I, I, I think that is the most noble thing you can do. You are elected to Congress to uh, represent the American people, not the interests of, of APAC. And he just said it plainly there. Yeah. And we also heard from AOC who came under attack in her own language. <laughs> Uh, which was just less direct than Massey, but this is an escalation by AOC and the squad against the Israel lobby, and it is unprecedented. APAC endorsed scores of January 6th insurrectionists, AOC says. They are no friend to American democracy, so she's taking the sort of partisan line there. 
They are one of the more racist and bigoted PACs in Congress as well, who disproportionately target members of color. Very true. They are an extremist organization that destabilizes U.S. democracy. The third statement is actually really important. Um, and you can see how she crafts her tweets. Like I mean, it's just as, as much as I'm giving, you know, not that really in the squad, it's not really that big of a deal to criticize APAC. We know Ilhan Omar really bravely already kind of broke the floodgates on that one. But I personally find it really cynical the way she made it about January 6th in America. Like, I, I actually hate that. I, I hate making it about partisanship, dividing Americans, and and just really playing into the Democratic Party line there. APAC and, and this war should not be about that. This should be a time for unity, really talking about what it is the American people need and not not bagging on January. I mean, I'm sorry. It's almost like that's why I tweeted. It's, it's, it's as if they had a meeting with the Democratic Party and Mama Pelosi or somebody said, OK, squad, you can criticize APAC as long as you make it about January 6th and ultimately make some propagandistic partisan point about about Republicans. So, I mean, yeah, great. Criticize APAC. It is true they're extremists, but, and yeah, they're racist. But then when people like AOC start saying that, it creates this whole uh, reaction that this is just some woke identity. I mean, it, the whole debate around Palestine this time around has become warped uh, by, by that kind of that politics. I think the conversation should be about the war, the death of children, and the risk that this poses to American security. It, by the way, can I, I'd like to give a shout out to my congressperson, Summer Lee. I don't know if you know her. She's a brand new congresswoman. She's African-American and she has been supporting a ceasefire. She's been very good on this issue. APAC tried to, you know, tried to defeat her for her first run as congressperson. Again, it's, she's in her first term. And now there's a huge movement to get rid of her because she is very good on this issue. And again, while we, you know, I like to be critical of those who, who, you know, deserve criticism, she deserves a lot of support for standing in there and, 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 you know, being right on in this issue. And, you know, again, in a fairly conservative city of, of Pittsburgh. So I, anyway, I'm proud of her. Good job. Yeah, well, I mean, it's true that APAC has targeted, people of color like Summer Lee, and they also have a program to co-opt or control people of color. Uh, Haim Saban, the Democratic Party's largest donor traditionally, who said, I'm a one-issue guy and my issue is Israel, Beverly Hills-based Hollywood billionaire. Uh, he has a program to basically pay anyone who wins a election to be uh, class president at a historically black college to send them to APAC and then they network them in and promise them big jobs. And, you know, you see people like um, Bakari Sellers, who we call Bakari Sellout on CNN all the time. He was a product of this, this uh, program to basically pay black people to support Israel. I mean, bribe black people to support Israel. And his father, Cleveland Sellers, is a famous civil rights organizer from SNCC who, you know, has never spoken publicly about his son, but what they're trying to do is neutralize black people as a counter hegemonic force within American society. So when you see members of the squad speaking out, it's, it does complicate that, but they do it in a partisan way. And Anya, that messaging is actually coming from 
within the Palestine solidarity movement, unfortunately, about insurrectionists. Jewish Voice for Peace uses that language. It's like you'll see their their Twitter. If not now, this Jewish protest group, they use that language and they they see Palestine as exclusively a leftist issue. Um, and that's unfortunate because I think it's an issue for everyone. Although, you know, conservatives and the Christian right have really revealed themselves as completely well, genocidal. Well, I think actually that Christians are a demographic in the United States that need to be reached. You can, the, the part, the leadership and the churches, the church leadership can be bought and propagandized all again. I mean, Israel's really prioritized bringing in the Christian right as like, a because they know they can't only rely on Jewish support in the United States. And so, but Christians, and then this is part of what this recent war has exposed with what I think is the deliberate targeting of Christian sites in Gaza, because Israel knows what they're doing when they hit those hospitals and when they hit churches. Uh, that it is exposing the Jewish state in the Levant actually also excludes Christians. It's not just Muslims that are that are excluded from the Zionist vision in the Holy Land. So Christians, I think, do need to be communicated with. And then also MAGA, the point needs to be made. Yeah, the politicians can fail constantly. They can go be pro-Israel. That's what's going to happen because they need money. But the average person, the average MAGA voter and the average American conservative can totally be won over with a paleo-conservative or America first message that is actually, look, as you said at the beginning of this, Max, Israel is not a good ally. Israel is endangering our national security interests. Our troops in the region are at risk because of Israel's actions. And uh, we need to act as a sovereign nation. I think that should be the message instead of just like, bagging on january 6 protesters it's, well it's, it's endangering it's endangering american empire and that's uh the the realist perspective that like jim baker put forward under bush was linkage that the u.s the u.s's own footprint in the middle east and its ability to maintain vassal states like jordan is imperiled by israel's fanaticism so you have for example the al-assad base in iraq which has come under attack multiple times in the past two weeks by drones the yemeni government run by Ansar Allah, known as the Houthis, has declared war openly on Israel and has fired a ballistic missile at the southern Israeli city of Eilat 24 hours ago. Uh, but, you know, the U.S. bases there or the, by the Kanoko oil fields in northeastern Syria, Dan, these are sitting ducks. And they were put there, in my view, for that, for that, for that particular purpose by the neocons as a tripwire for war with Iran. So Israel is trying to drag the U.S., with its neoconservative cutouts in Washington into this confrontation. Yeah, no, I believe that. I believe that uh, Netanyahu would like a war with Iran. He's wanted one for a while. And I do think there's people in Washington who have also been itching for that war. And quite sadly, we may get it. I mean, that, that may be what's going to happen here. And, you know, the U.S. has been attacking Iranian targets in Syria in the past days, um, again, clearly trying to provoke Iran into something. And given that Israel has nuclear weapons, um, I think if, if Israel would use them anywhere, where it would be against Iran. So I think it's a very troubling time. And again, you've mentioned, Anya, you know, this thing where, you know, we have people, we have elected officials and unelected officials who want to bring about Armageddon. 
through Israel. I mean, I, I don't think that should be understated. Not only, as you say, is that not, you know, defending the interests of the American people, it's literally and intentionally putting the entire world at stake for what are cultish ideas. I mean, we literally have bizarre, a bizarre religious cult who has major power in the United States and that would like a conflagration in the Middle East to bring about, as you say, end times, meaning the end of the world. I mean, what, what kind of people would want such a thing? Well, and if they're going to get it by siding with a state that is murdering civilians on a massive scale on a daily basis, if they get their end times, I think they're all going to have a one-way ticket to you know where. So and that's one thing that I just don't really understand about that, that, yeah, let's go rah-rah for this murderous apartheid state because we believe that then we're going to get the end times. All right, well, then where does that leave you? On Judgment Day, I don't think it leaves you in a in a good place if you believe in in something like that. So, Dan, though, since you you were just meant you brought up the possibility of a war with Iran, and I think obviously that is a very real possibility from day one or from October seventh, we heard the pro-Israel establishment in the United States saying that this was an Iranian attack on the United States. People like Nikki Haley were saying insane making insane statements like that, essentially saying that the United States had an obligation to become involved. And I, I mean, once it becomes, if it did become a war with Iran, how soon does then that become a war with China and Russia as well? I mean, I don't think it would be 24 hours. Yeah, no, pretty quickly. Now, that is the danger. I mean, we really are. I'm sorry, we are heading possibly towards Armageddon. I mean, it really, you know, the possibility of World War Three is is upon us. And uh, we knew we've, and that's been true for a while. I mean, you know, uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, viewed the war in Ukraine as pushing us closer to the nuclear um, conflagration than than any time in human history. And now it's even closer, you know, and again, for no other reason, people should be clamoring for the U.S. to find a peaceful negotiated solution out of this terrible situation in the Middle East instead of stoking more and more conflict. Apparently on Friday, we're probably going to hear from Nasrallah saying that Hezbollah is going to declare war on Israel, which will bring Lebanon into the war. I mean, we, you know, we're staring at World War III and that people are so nonchalant about that. And, you know, you mentioned hell, and I, so I, I'd like to mention hell, too. And the quote, you know, the, the, the quote from Dante comes to mind, right? That the, the, the ninth level of hell, the worst level of hell is reserved for those who are neutral in times of moral crisis. We cannot be neutral in this situation. And people who are like, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, no. There's a genocide happening that needs to be resisted. There's war happening that needs to be resisted. There's no time for neutrality. And and the talk of heaven and hell and these religious concepts that aren't usually part of our, our language here at the gray zone is unavoidable with this conflict because one of the main parties, Israel, has defined this all in religious terms. If you look at the statements Netanyahu I mean, just forget about the fact that they call themselves a Jewish state, that they disgustingly use 
the symbols that have come to represent the Jewish faith on their Nazi uniforms, as they did at the UN, their Zio Nazi uniform, or they take it and they put it on their flag while they say, we're going to go and basically kill all of these non-Jews. That's what they're saying. They're openly saying it. So when they are speaking as if and quoting the Bible or then the Old Testament in order to justify the slaughter, when you have Muslim states in the region that are really also driven by their own faith and Christians in the West that are driven by this end times fanaticism, we are dealing with a a religious war uh, 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 on a level that it really transcends something like we saw in Ukraine or something that we saw as in Iraq, because people are acting, including people that have nuclear codes and commands over militaries and air force. We're dealing with people who are thinking that they have a divine right, but because of God to kill and to murder and perhaps even wage a nuclear war. So I've never, I've never felt the religious aspect of, of this conflict and the, the kind of like biblical angle of all of this so intensely until now, because it's just all out there, all out in the open. And it's very dangerous. Well, the, the language that I think we're hearing from Netanyahu and we hear from Gilad Erdan, his ambassador at the UN, who spoke at Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas, which is the base of Christian Zionism in the United States. It's the Church of John Hagee, the most popular pro-apocalypse pastor. That religious language is designed specifically to cater to and cultivate support from the Republican Party base. Uh, and they may be preparing for Donald Trump presidency as they as Biden's support for Israel actually weakens him among his own base. Uh, Netanyahu's language about Amalek was explicitly genocidal, referring to the people in Gaza as Amalekites. The Amalekites were struck down and killed by the sword of God, I believe in the book of Deuteronomy, because they uh, attacked the Hebrews as they escaped Egypt um, from behind in a sort of a guerrilla attack. And Netanyahu has re repeatedly used the language of Amalek to refer to Palestinians. Um, but it also appeals to the genocidal uh, mood that is enshrouded and consumed Israeli society. And Israel is primed for genocide specifically because of its settler colonial nature. And this really is about settler colonialism in my view. It's not about religion. It's why Hamas is not a group, a jihadist group like ISIS or Al Qaeda, which wages attacks abroad. It is fighting as Palestinian guerrillas traditionally have, as the Mau Mau's in Kenya did. They're fighting settler colonialism. And a settler colonial entity is different from a traditional metropole colonial entity like France and Algeria or the Britain in India, because the settler colonialists have no metropole to return to. So they believe they must fight till the end without giving up an inch in order to secure their place. The, the, so they have two options, to find some kind of accommodation with the native people or commit genocide. And it's obvious Israel isn't trying to find any accommodation with the Palestinians. So logically, they must move towards genocide. And these are the kind of statements we're hearing from common Israelis inside Israel today. I just wanted to play this clip real quick. 
This is an interview with an Israeli soldier and his mom in Tel Aviv. I think we can do a lot more inside of Gaza. It's a fight between the good and the bad, the good and the evil. And this is like the language we're hearing from, these are secular people. It's a fight between good and evil. The only innocent people that are in Gaza now are the 229 hostages that were taken. Once they will go back to Israel, we will pop Shifa Hospital, all the hospitals, all the channels and kill them all. It's a How do you know they're secular? There's no argue about that. We are the center of the world now. So bomb Shifa Hospital, bomb all the hospitals and kill them all. There's no argument about them that we are the center of the world. It's a battle between good and evil. But you don't think they're religious. They, they, you don't think they have a religious interpretation of when they say well, that. Well, the secular Zionists have a genocidal mentality towards Palestinians as well. And we're seeing uh, from people even within the Zionist left in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv who led protests against Netanyahu, the same kind of mentality. Um, even prominent journalists like Haim Levinson at Haaretz, who Anya, you interviewed, for your documentary about Netanyahu, he said there is no distinction between civilians and uh, military in Gaza. Yeah, but so, he's, are they not, how do you differentiate? Because uh, this whole identity of the state is religious. So I don't, how do you, how do you, how do you see how they're not secular? How, how are well, they secular? as uh, someone joked about famously about David Ben-Gurion, um, you say that you don't, you don't believe in God, but God gave you the land. And that's sort of the contradiction of secular Zionism is that the secular socialist oriented Zionists always would invoke the Holocaust in the Bible when they themselves did not believe in the Bible. Uh, it's just simply something, it's simply a political tool. Israel has all of these contradictions, um, but the religious nationalist camp is definitely ascendant in Israel. And it's what helped kind of produce this crisis Netanyahu himself is secular, yet his son always wins all the has was got famous for winning all the Bible quiz competitions, and he <laughs> knows the Bible inside and out. So for him, it's a, the Bible's a political tool. And yelling at prostitutes and strippers. Yeah, well, his son did, obviously. I mean, his son wasn't exactly a, a pious person, but the point is, just like in in, in the U.S. heartland, the the Torah religious script or in um you know the refugee camps in palestine religion is a, a powerful tool for mobilizing people and that's what netanyahu is doing he's very good at it and he's mobilizing evangelical christians in the u.s as well as the religious nationalist camp who are his coalition partners until recently um, and you have one of the biggest fanatics in israel Idamar ben gvir who has been the security minister i mean this is a guy who doesn't make any bones about his support for the genocide of Palestinians. He dressed up as Halloween for Halloween or sorry, Purim in Israel, which is the Jewish kind of dress up festival as Baruch Goldstein, his hero who massacred uh, something like a hundred Palestinians at the Ibrahimi mosque in Hebron and incited the second intifada of suicide bombings. So that's the security minister that Netanyahu who's secular is working with. Dan, I know you have, to go soon so you've also you've spent time in lebanon and iran two 
countries that are going to be central to this conflict as it develops. How did your experiences in, in those two places inform your understanding of, of the Israel-Palestine conflict or the, 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 how it relates to the wider region? Yes, and I've also been to Syria. Um, first of all, I mean, I'll just say going to Syria and Lebanon in particular, I mean, in the Levant there, I mean, I just have to say you'll meet the, the kindest people you, you've ever met. And uh, that's just true in Iran, too. I mean, I, I want to say that I didn't know what hospitality was till I went to those countries, that I learned hospitality from those. So I want to say that first. But also, you know, Iran in particular, I mean, because it's so misunderstood and so misportrayed, people need to understand it's a very intellectual society and that women, you know, obviously have a long way to go in terms of, you know, uh, e you know, equality and whatnot in that society. But still, they have high places in that as, as, uh, society, are well-educated. Uh, it is not the backward you know, a uh, country that we are led to believe. And um, the one thing I'm certain of is that all those countries would like to get along with the West and have long histories of getting along with the West and that it's the West that has shunned them. You know, uh, we have to remember, for example, in the case of Iran, that after 9-11, they offered and gave help in the war on terror. And they thought that the U.S. and the West would welcome them back and that maybe they could have this grand bargain with the U.S. and even offered that in a fax, I guess, sent to the White House, which was ignored. Um, and that's the tragedy. The, the tragedy of all this is that we have shunned entire nations that, frankly, we have every ability to get along with. And the tragedy of Syria and Lebanon are that these countries have been destroyed by the West. You know, Beirut, which I visited, which is still beautiful, you know, in terms of its landscape, used to be called the Paris of the East. And now it's been devastated. I mean, absolutely devastated by the economic war against Lebanon. And Syria has been devastated by the war that, but that the world really waged against it, you know, since 2000. 11 um and by the economic war as well you know and then and that's tragic as well uh the middle east has largely been left in ruins by the west war on it for years ironically the one country that that is not in ruins there is iran because they have managed to defend themselves against the possibility of, of Western assault, at least up till now. But um, I fear that they may now be the, 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 the object of, of U.S. war aims. And it should be noted that in the region, Iran is really the best friend the Palestinians have. I mean, um, and Syria as well. I mean, we have to, you know, at least as I understand it, the war against Assad in Syria started because he rejected an offer by the West to that if he backed off his support of the Palestinian people, that they would leave him alone, essentially. And he, he rejected that. And, and the war followed, you know. So uh, 
those that have supported the Palestinian people are being punished greatly. And it's yes. by no by no accident. Yes, and, and we know according to just the open neocon plans that the whole chessboard that they had laid out of the states that they wanted to weaken were about crushing pan-Arab nationalism. I mean, this is decades, not just the recent war in Iraq, but the way they've done that in Egypt to break down uh, the sovereign movement there. And in Jordan, obviously, is an extension, just an invented little kingdom that the British made up that ultimately would be part of Palestine if there were an actual Palestinian state. Again, Israel, all of these borders are arbitrary, drawn by the West. So it is obvious, yes, that the countries that have been targeted, it's kind of been like a, it's a chess board and a domino effect where it's about pushing toward Iran the country that is seen as the major counterweight to the West and particularly Israel's interests in the region. Yeah, the yeah, can I, Go ahead. Yeah. Hmm? Go ahead, Dan. I just wanted to, that made me think of something else. And then I've written about this, you know, when we talk about the battle of civilization or the battle for civilization, the irony of ironies is that, you know, the countries in the region that really value uh, civilization and, 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 and their history and antiquities and, and religious pluralism are the countries that the West hates the most. And that is Syria and Iran. I mean, and I was surprised when I went to Syria, I'll just give a little anecdote. And this goes to the discussion about the attack on Christianity by the West in, in the Middle East. You know, I visited a couple uh, cities uh, like Malula, which is one of the last cities on earth that speaks Aramaic, the language of Jesus Christ. And there's an ancient Christian culture and population. And it's beautiful. And there's a beautiful main church there that uh, I, you know, I visited. And during the war, the Free Syria Army that the U.S. was backing tried to destroy that church. It took these nuns hostage. It tried to wipe out Christianity and Malula in this ancient Christian city. And who came in to defend the Christians? The Hezbollah. Syrian army and Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah. And I wish I have to say, you know, you learn something every day. I didn't know that before I went there. And then I went to homes. And I went to this, again, another ancient Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox church. I think it was for founded in something like 69 AD. You can go to the old part of the church that's in a cave under it. And they claim to have the belt of the Virgin Mary that she wore around her waist. Okay, this is a huge, of course, religious relic. Again, who came to try to destroy that church and to, you know, steal that belt? It was the U.S.-backed Free Syria Army. And again, who protected the church? Who protected that relic? The Syrian army with the help of Hezbollah. And in who fact, was bombing the Syrian army? What's that? Who was bombing the Syrian army and providing logistical support essentially to the free Syrian army, Israel? Yeah, and there you go too. And it was the Syrian army that actually helped escort people from the church to bring that belt away from the church before the free Syrian army could get there so that it would be protected. Again, these are incredible ironies that people have no idea. And again, you go to, go to Iran 
and there's a large Jewish population there. There's a Jewish hospital that, that the Iranian government has given money to. There's active synagogues there that I visited. There are um, um, Armenian Christian churches, giant ones there that flourish there. Um, there are ancient Zoroastrian um, uh, uh, ruins there that are protected. Again, all these things are protected, these Christian churches, these synagogues, the Zoroastrian ruins. And be very clear, if the West gets its hands on Iran, they will destroy those things as they have throughout Syria, as they did in Iraq. If there is a battle of civilization, if there's a battle for civilization, the U.S. is on the wrong side of this, and so is Israel. And that's just a fact, and it's a painful fact, but it's a reality that took me a long time to to come to grips with, but it, I believe it. Is it is a deeply painful fact, especially because Americans are so, so propagandized. They have no idea. If you told them that Hezbollah was defending these ancient Christian sites in, in Syria that we are lucky to have because yes. so much was destroyed and uh, sites of all faiths. It, it is a crime that we have not even fully di digested, a crime against civilization and humanity that took place in Syria, one of just the most culturally and historical rich countries on earth. So well, during the Israeli occupation of Beirut, they destroyed the main synagogue in shelling. The Israeli military destroyed the last synagogue in Beirut with shelling and the Jewish Lebanese community was cleared out. Uh, that synagogue has been restored and actually Hezbollah provided some degree of support for the restoration of the synagogue. Uh, it's also worth noting that Julia Boutrous, one of the most famous singers in Lebanon, who is openly pro Hezbollah, supports the armed struggle, is Christian. Uh, Hezbollah does have many Christians among its base and you'll see them at its rallies. So the idea that this is a you know strictly sectarian religious war is that that the U.S. and Israel put forward is just warped. Has uh, Hamas is a Sunni group that is not controlled by Iran, but they, I mean, the, 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 it's just too complicated for stupid people to understand, and that's that's the essence of Israeli and U.S. propaganda. It's by morons for morons for the purpose of religious war. And that, go ahead. The yeah. we, when we, we went to Malula, Anya, as well. Yeah, I, and that's what I, yeah, I was just going to say to emphasize Dan's point is maybe until you go there, you don't understand that all of these countries that are put up as caricatures and only focused on the Muslim faith, once you go there, you really understand Syria and also Palestine. Th this is... This is the land where these faiths come from. Mm -hmm. So when you go to Damascus and your Syrian friend is showing you around, even if they're Muslim, they're so proud to tell you this is the church where John the Baptist saw the light. And it was two, three blocks away from where Saudi-backed extremists came and flattened or like almost flattened the entire the entire area. So it was like these areas, the, the, what was preserved in, in the old city of Damascus and in Malula is just, it's a treasure that we have to be so grateful for because th they came this close, this close to just flattening it, destroying it and, and wiping it off the planet. So th that pride exists, whether you're in Palestine, Syria, everywhere, that this, this is the birthplace of the Christian faith, 
the Muslim faith and, and the Jewish faith. And it should be a place where all of these people are living together in the image of, of, of God and peace. And instead you have a group that has decided that they, they, they own it all and they have the, the God-given right to uh, wipe everyone else out of it. So Americans who have fallen for that side, particularly the Christians, are, are really in for a rude awakening, especially if they get their little Armageddon that they want. Yeah, the, the scene of going to the old city of Damascus, Dan, and I'm sure you saw this, was incredible for the first time because you realized that that was the front line. And that literally across the road, as Anya said, Jaysh al-Islam, the Saudi-backed militia, which was holding people as slaves, torturing them, cutting people's hands off for alleged stealing, hoarding aid, and massacring any minority. It was literally across the street from where John the Baptist saw the light, from some of the holiest shrines of Christianity by design. And the Syrian army stopped that. And Israel is now attacking Syria again and saying that they're fighting a war for civilization. Go inside Israel. Israel, it's actually Palestine. Go to East Jerusalem and see what Israel's doing. They're creating these phony biblical theme parks on top of Palestinian neighborhoods with actually no archaeological basis to attract fanatical religious nationalist Jews and Christians like Ir David, the city of David, which was built in Silwan, one of the most um, brutally occupied areas in East Jerusalem because they said that they found the feces that may have been king belonging to King David there. These archaeolo there, there was actually no evidence of a city of David there. So they built a biblical theme park and then all the settlements look like they're hideous. They look like Temecula, California or like West Covina. That That's supposed to be the Holy Land. Their idea of the, of the Holy Land is a perversion of the, histor the history that's always been there the christian population of bethlehem and gaza is being extinguished through ethnic cleansing and by design it by would design. be it would be biblical also that if these christians believe the end times are coming that a lot of them are going to be led in the wrong direction <laughs> that seems to be what a lot of them are happy to do i mean that's part of the story so if that's where you want to end up on this side of things rather than with the Christians that are being bombed in their churches when they're seeking refuge from a religious supremacist state. I mean, I don't know how it could be any more clear. Yeah, no, entire bloodlines of Christians were killed in that bombing of the church in, in Gaza. It's, it wasn't it's, Hamas. And it was not. It was St. Porphyrius, and it had been there since St. Porphyrius converted the Christians of the Gaza area from paganism in the fourth century. So it was, I think, the third oldest church on the planet. Yep. Yeah. Tragic. Um, yeah, I don't know your schedule, Dan. Um, but Yeah, I probably do need to go. I have a two o'clock and I should I should get something to eat before then. So I want to thank you, though, for having me on. I, I, I'm a great admirer of you both and of Gray Zone, and I urge everyone to support you. And well, Dan, are we, back to you, Dan. Are we going to see you on uh, Friday? Yeah, we'll see you on Friday, and we're going to march together on uh, Saturday, I think, uh, November 4th. Come on down and join us to march for the Palestinian people this Saturday. So it's going to be the largest, I think, the largest march in U.S. history in solidarity with Palestine. Yes. And it's going to be sending a strong message to the Biden administration because most of the people marching are people that they count on or take for granted at election time. 
Absolutely. All right, Dan. Well, uh, thank you. Everyone, thank you, just look up Dan Kovalik on your look, you know, online for any so some of the, the greatest and most easily accessible scholarship on U.S. Empire. That's yeah. He just breaks it all down. Breaks it all down. He's got these books where you pick the pick the subject, and he breaks down all the history, the plot to uh, scapegoat Russia. He's got Russia Gate, Nicaragua, Iran. Thank you. All right, yeah, Dan. You can find me on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik. So uh, thank you. All right, Dan. Okay. Keep giving him hell. Okay. You too. Cheers. Be so right, Max, so not to go are. for too much longer, but I feel like uh, you have very unique expertise on an uh, uh, aspect of this war that many people can't discuss, which is just Hamas itself, the Qassam brigades. What exactly? Uh, when Israel says that they're going to that they're at war with Hamas and they have to eradicate Hamas, what does that actually mean? because we never hear from Hamas in the mainstream media. As we discussed, we never, we don't, even though they're elected to represent Palestine, we don't hear them from them at the United Nations or at any international institution. So let's start, Hamas, let's just break down what exactly the structure is. Hamas is a political party and then the Qassam Brigades are their military wing, correct? Yeah, so Hamas is a political party that was, founded around 1988 by what are commonly known as Islamists, uh, Islamist preacher and uh, Islamist organizers, but also people who are just politicians who worked within the kind of context that you might see with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. It's a slightly different mentality. The head of the Hamas Politburo now is Khalid Mishal, who moved from Damascus to Qatar during the Arab Spring, sort of a what I would consider an ill-fated move when he believed that the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, Reform and Justice Party in Egypt under Mohamed Morsi was actually going to consolidate control democratically in Egypt and then begin to open things up between Egypt and Gaza. And Qatar was supplying a lot of the money for the Egyptian government, as well as you know the propaganda apparatus through Al Jazeera Arabic, that 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 failed, and uh, we saw a return to the armed struggle. Hamas uh, declined in political popularity after the failure of the Arab Spring, but the consensus within Palestine is all near total support for the Al Qassam Brigades, which is an underground armed organization that has been fostered by Hamas, but which makes its own military decisions and whose leadership are folk heroes among people in the Gaza Strip and throughout Palestine. And I think there's very little, it's on, it, there's very little reporting on this group for a reason, and it's because Israel wants to portray it as just simply like ISIS. But this is an organization that is using typical um, traditional guerrilla tactics and is fighting for national liberation against a settler colonial movement and government and military. And as uh, none other than Emil Hokayim, who is from the British state-funded International Institute for Security Studies in London, said they are more Viet Cong than ISIS. 
Um, they're essentially an Islamist Viet Cong that has reverse engineered Israel's military and is now, as we speak, exploiting Israel's weaknesses in the field and causing many Israeli casualties, which the Israeli military uh, appears to be covering up. So I want to talk a little bit. Yeah. Lead them. So um, the Al-Qassam Brigades, as I mentioned earlier in this stream, is led by Mohammed Daif. Uh, that's not his real name. He's a very mysterious figure uh, whose name essentially just means guest because he's always moving from location to location, uh, staying with various families, supporters, a very close circle. He doesn't use phones. He communicates only through a close circle of associates. He's survived five assassination attempts. I was sort of a witness to the last assassination attempt on him, which was carried out by the Israeli Air Force with a GBU bunker buster bomb. Uh, they struck an apartment building in the Al Nasser neighborhood of, in the middle of Gaza City. And I just happened to be nearby in the Al Rimal neighborhood carrying out an interview. And I heard this just giant explosion and I saw a flash of light. This was in 2014. Out, this is in 2014, in August 2014. But again, he survived and they killed his entire family. Um, he's severely disfigured. Said It's said that he can only walk a short distance. Um, but he maintains uh, superhero, folk hero status within Palestine. His spokesman is known as Abu Obaidah. The Israeli military has claimed to identify him. Al-Shark al-Ausat, the Saudi paper, has identified him as a, uh, a student of Islamic studies at, I think, Al-Azhar University, someone who's highly educated. I've actually seen him speak at a press conference in the rubble east of Gaza City after the 2014 war. And when he speaks, Everyone in the refugee camp stops to listen, gathers around TVs, and he's sending a very clear message to the Israeli military and taunting them in the process. There's a, a song that kind of honors him. It's like a pop song that honors him in, in Palestine. Uh, oh, Abu Obaidah, your words are like gunpowder. And so he too is sort of a folk hero who is not understood in the West, but he has given a few interviews to Western reporters and he emphasizes, as uh, according to the, the doctrine, to the extent there is one of Mohammed Daif, that they prefer to fight soldiers, that their preference is to fight soldiers on their own terrain and to uh, use military tactics instead of the suicide bombing tactics that we saw under in, in, in the earlier stage of the Al-Qassam Brigades. The Al-Qassam Brigades were sort of made their presence known when Hamas was in its quietest phase before it began running for elections. It had one Carl Gustav rifle, which did, which barely even fired. It, would, it was one gun and they'd march down the street in Gaza City with the gun to frighten the Israeli occupation forces who were then inside Gaza protecting the settlers. Their first uh, de facto leader was named Ahmed Akel, and he carried out attacks on settlers in Hebron, then escaped from Hebron dressed as a settler back into the Gaza Strip and was eventually uh, killed in a raid. He was succeeded by Yahya Ayash, who then began, it was Ayash who implemented the tactic of suicide bombing after the fanatical Jewish settler Baruch Goldstein from Brooklyn, New York, massacred scores of Palestinians in the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron in a deliberate attempt to shatter the Oslo Accords, uh, the Oslo peace process. 
And so this was revenge, a way of saying, you can't just slaughter us without an answer. Um, Ayash was killed by the Israeli military during a ceasefire under Shimon Peres, this so-called peacenik. And you know it's important to note that how the Israeli leadership has always disrupted the peace process. He killed him at a time when Ayash and all Palestinian factions had agreed to a ceasefire so that they could negotiate this peace process. How was he killed? His best friend's uncle handed him a phone, a, like a cell phone type device, and it was detonated by a nearby Israeli helicopter and it blew his brains out. The friend's uncle turned out to be an Israeli collaborator. So then the leadership passed to Salah Shahada, who was a lecturer at Islamic University in Gaza, very educated man. Um, he continued to lead operations throughout the Second Intifada, which were very ugly. It was a time when you know their, their military capacity was very low. So that's why you saw the use of suicide bombing, but there were also armed confrontations with the Israelis. Salah Shahada was killed in an airstrike, a targeted deliberate airstrike on a civilian apartment block in 2002, just to kill him, the Israeli Air Force killed um, maybe 30 other people, sort of like what we saw yesterday in the Jabalia refugee camp. And it was at that time that the George W. Bush administration actually criticized Israel and condemned that attack because once again, it was carried out during a ceasefire in order to disrupt the so-called peace process, which Shahada and all the other factions had agreed to at that point. That's when Mohammed Daif comes in. He says, forget about the peace process. They keep killing us during all the ceasefires. And what we need to do is move away from suicide bombing and militarize and turn Gaza into the kind of cradle of resistance, a base for the guerrilla army. That's when the tunnel tactic and so the tunnel tactic comes into play when Israel does its disengagement. And here's another important point to make. In 2005, Ariel Sharon, the most violent architect of Israeli occupation, who was then prime minister, announces a disengagement from Gaza. This means no more Israeli settlers and no more troops inside Gaza. It will be ruled from the outside through the panopticon military structure. That allows the resistance factions to start uh, building tunnels under the Gaza Strip tunnels into Egypt to bring supplies in, including mostly civilian supplies. And they had to do that to break the siege, but also to begin refining their tactics. And it was someone known as the engineer, Adnan Al-Ghul, who begins uh, constructing workshops across the Gaza Strip to build rocket launchers, um, to start even trying to pioneer a drone, the technology that Israel invented. And Al-Ghul, of course, was killed, assassinated by Israel, but his engineering know-how was passed down under Dave's leadership to the point where today you now see the Al-Qassam brigades going, to, going into combat with the most high-tech army probably in the world, or at least on par with the U.S. Army. With that's homemade, what they call themselves. Yeah, that's what they call themselves. Tech with, is, what, tech is what, you, what you're proud of when you don't have fighters. Exactly. Well, when you when you're, I mean, and I mean, and, and just on that point, why did Israel prioritize the drone UAVs? It was because during the first Lebanon war, its occupation of Beirut, they were losing so many soldiers that Israel saw the first, the first kind of peace movement or a movement for uh, withdrawal by the mothers of dead soldiers or soldiers who'd been taken captive. 
Israel is a very casualty averse society. And so they wanted basically to fight wars with robots. Right. And Al-Qassam plays to that. If I recall, all this history is in your third book, The 51 Day War, about yeah, how- Yeah, there's a short history there. And, you know, I think it's it's worth uh, reading that to understand. I mean, I think I, I correctly predicted the kind of combat when anyone who followed this would have been able to say confidently that the Al-Qassam brigades would perform very well in the field once Israel entered the Gaza Strip. And so keep in mind that for two weeks, Israel has been carpet carpet bombing Gaza, with, including with bunker buster bombs, trying to target the tunnel network, uh, killing anyone they think is related to Hamas. And now Israel, in the last 48 hours, according to the Israeli military, and I think the number is much higher, has lost 18 soldiers in the field. Here's a look at some of the combat footage that was published by the Al-Qassam brigades. I'm not going to show anything from October 7th because that might get this whole thing banned, but they basically wasted the entire Israeli military's entire Gaza division on October 7th. Most uh, Israeli deaths that day were military age people. This is another fact that you'll never hear in Western media. They want to make it out to be just like a slaughter of civilians, but the bases were completely overrun. And now here is combat close quarters combat between the Al-Qassam brigades, as well as uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the Israeli military with tanks. And how, how have they been able to, oh, you're gonna show this. So this is uh, west of the Erez crossing in the north by Beit Hanun, which is the nexus of the Israeli siege of Gaza. And these are open fields where Israel stationed its tanks um, and Anya and I have actually, we, we've passed through the, through this buffer zone. So there are a lot of high, um, there's a lot of high grass there, which can be used as shelter by guerrilla fighters. And you see them moving out of the tunnel, which obviously Israel failed to eliminate. These are rocket propelled grenades and they're going to approach a tank formation. I'll, and, I'll, and and we'll, we'll see some pretty dramatic footage towards towards the end filmed with a drone. And this is textbook Al-Qassam tactics. Getting into close quarters with Israeli forces neutralizes air power because air, air support would kill those soldiers. Yeah, but Israel, Israel has no problem doing that. Well, that's what we're going to see more and more of. So look at this. I mean, look at that tank formation, first of all. It, it, it's, it's, it's military folly to have your tanks that close together, uh, as we saw with uh, Russian tanks getting hit by early on in Ukraine. Um, it opens you up to mortar fire, artillery fire. Hamas doesn't have, or Al-Qassam doesn't have artillery, but look at where they're, they've managed to destroy tanks, dislodge men. They've claimed to have destroyed as at least 22 armored vehicles already in the Gaza Strip. Um, and here, yeah. this is an element of the war that the Western media don't show you. They don't actually speak about this war in military terms, no. just as they didn't discuss the events of October 7th in military terms or just analyze what actually happened from a military perspective that Hamas 
had a military objective to enter Israeli society, raid military bases and targets, and take hostages back to Gaza. But now, if you watch the mainstream media, all you hear about are the, we've heard about the impending Israeli invasion, ground invasion for three weeks now, maybe almost four. And what they leave out is that it seems from my view that the Israelis are trying. They have been for these weeks attempting to make the ground invasion happen and they can't do it. And so we don't hear about these skirmishes. We don't actually hear about the Israelis that are dying. Uh, we have no idea, really, even because Israel's not going to give us accurate figures of what's happening in terms of the the man to man combat on the ground in Gaza right now. Uh, I do think that's an accurate read. Does it seem like the Israelis are trying, attempting repeatedly this ground invasion and then getting beat back? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and they're covering up their losses. Uh, and the Western media do not discuss it at all. The Israelis, first of all, got advice from James Glynn, who was a U.S. colonel, I believe, may have been a general, who oversaw the U.S. counterinsurgency campaigns in Fallujah and Mosul. He's, you know, the butcher of Fallujah, where the U.S. Uh, engaged in a shake-and-bake operation and doused that city with white phosphorus, which we see Israel using day after day in, on civilian areas in Gaza. Uh, and then Mosul, I mean, was destroyed. Much of the city was destroyed in order to dislodge ISIS. But Glenn appeared to have shaken his head and walked away from his consultations with the Israeli military and said, "He, this is paraphrasing his quote, whatever Israel does is their decision. What he's basically saying is that they don't really have a strategy or a plan and they weren't necessarily listening to me when I warned them about going into Gaza. Um, and so what they're doing right now in Gaza is they've moved into areas in the north like Sudania where there are like resorts and there's farmland in the north as we see where their tanks are, uh, just empty land, the buffer zone. And they're unable to move further into more heavily built up urban areas because that's where the element of surprise is going to doom them. Uh, and they've basically established these bases de facto bases inside Gaza, but it's unclear where they're going to go next. They haven't started the march into Gaza City and they don't have a political objective. They say they want to topple Hamas. How are they going to do that? What will they replace it with? Um, and meanwhile, they're taking losses. I mean, it, it, they're essentially saying they're waging a regime change war on Gaza, which from the U.S. perspective, we should know at that point never really works out. Right. If your goal is to go in and change a regime of a state, when has that worked in our favor? Now Israel's attempting to do that with Gaza. But really, let's be honest, that is not their objective here. It is very evident at this point that their goal, they're not going to have a real ground invasion. Their goal is to bomb Gaza. I think they want to just force them into the Sinai just through sheer force. And then the Israeli soldiers will mark, march upon the ruins and claim that they've expanded greater Israel to the Mediterranean Sea there. So, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The goal is not for the Israelis to come in there and do special ops and ground invasion to get these hostages. The, the Israelis do not care. They about have no them. strategy for that. And I've heard, a former, they're, I've they're heard a former Israeli colonel say that the reason they've established these bases in Gaza is so that the captives will just run out and then they can rescue them. But I mean, we've even heard in the words of a, a captive that 
she screamed at Netanyahu on camera and said, we don't, you just want to get us all killed. Yeah. What are you doing? Um, you know, but is it fair to say that is yeah. the objective? That is the Israeli military objective at this point. It is to just waste Gaza and clear everybody out to south. Yes, and they're going to have a hard time doing it. I mean, here is this was three days ago. Here is an Israeli Panther armored personnel carrier getting hit by a cornet missile, which is the wire guided anti tank weapon. That Hezbollah used to dislodge Israel from southern Lebanon in the late 90s. And this panther contained at least 14 soldiers. So they're getting, they're basically sitting ducks there against a very hardened guerrilla army um, who have also demonstrated their ability to use drones against Israeli Merkava tanks on October 7th. They've even begun introducing into the field, and I doubt these will have any effect, but the Al-Qassam brigades have now introduced anti-aircraft devices. This is the first video ever seen of anti-aircraft devices used by this guerrilla army with, only, with heavily reliant on homemade weapons in the Gaza Strip. This is a it's a propaganda video, but it does show their ability to advance under siege and constant bombing. If they are somehow ever able to neutralize Israeli air power, it's unclear what Israel will be able to do. These look like they're at best able to strike Apache uh, helicopters east of close close quarter support, like kind of combined operation. So I think the sound is there to lower it. But just yeah. to step away, to move away from the technical aspect and the history for a minute, because I think it's all good, but sometimes that gets a lot for people to absorb. And in day-to-day -day life right now, whether it's on Twitter or with people in person, a lot of what we're confronting is rhetoric. Yeah. And so... I, I want you to respond to one point that I hear a lot when we see videos like that, or when we hear about Hamas's or the Qassam Brigades, their, their incredible military capacity, considering they're under siege. You have Zionists like Ben Shapiro, for example, a major talking point they always make is the Palestinians in Gaza are complaining that they're under siege. They have no food. They have no water. They have no electricity. And Hamas is using all of these resources to build homemade rockets. And they had that propaganda push where they said that Hamas used some, uh, was it water pipes? And part of the, the, the water system to build rockets and to lob them at Israel. What rhetorically just do you say to the, cause I, it's such a cheap and ridiculous point, but how do you confront that talking point when people that are pro-Israel see videos like that, they say, see, the Palestinians aren't so poor and helpless. It's just that their Hamas leadership is choosing to invest in rockets and a military to kill Jews instead of feeding their own population. Well, Hamas does have a social services network, which is one of its key bases of, of support. It provides free food and education and youth camps um, in place of the actual state structure 
because they're not allowed to have a state. But one of the key sources of metal and explosives in the Gaza Strip, and this has even been reported in mainstream outlets like Reuters, is repurposed Israeli bombs. When I would walk through places like Beit Hanun that had been destroyed in 2014, people would constantly warn me, don't go in there. There's a giant unexploded bomb. And they have bomb disposal teams, which either disarm the bombs or take them apart. And then they repurpose them and transform them along with their metal into rockets. So a lot of the rockets being fired towards Tel Aviv or Ashkelon are, were actually first bombs dropped on civilian neighborhoods in Gaza, which failed to explode. It's the ultimate irony and, uh, and revenge. And then, of course, we look at the nature of these homemade weapons that Hamas is relying on. I mean, these are just the basics of guerrilla warfare. The fact that they can develop anything like an anti-aircraft system is amazing. Whether you hate them or not, it is a testament to ingenuity. And I guarantee you, if you look at those, that their military budget is a lot lower than Israel's. It's a whole lot lower than the United States as a percentage of whatever GDP exists in the Gaza Strip. Beyond that, it's like that old anti-drug ad where the dad walks into his kid's room and whips out the box, like the kid's stash and said, where, where did you get this from? Where did you learn this from? And the kid said, I learned it from watching you, dad. Um, well, yeah, they've learned it from they've they've learned this from their oppressor and they're using their oppressors tactics. And I guarantee you the vast majority of those guys who went into Israeli territory on October 7th with weapons, killed soldiers or killed noncombatants. I guarantee you the vast majority of them have lost family members in Israeli airstrikes in past Israeli assaults, maybe 80 percent. Yeah. And I mean. It's very, it's just a, it's a cheap, cynical point to say, to deny the Israeli siege because Hamas is able to, under these circumstances, create military, as if they have no right to resist. Of course, we know that they do, but somehow people have this logic that because they're able to build rockets and defend themselves militarily, that they could somehow be feeding, be feeding all of Gaza and oh, yeah. electricity up and running. I mean, that's the point that I'm trying to to discuss is that it is, they say, as if they, it's either or. No, if you're under siege and there isn't someone telling you what you can and can not even bring in in terms of seeds and foods and everything that you grow and produce inside of your country, uh, what else? Oh, how, what, what are you, what are you supposed to do? I mean, yeah, I remember in uh, 2009 or eight, Thomas Friedman wrote that Gaza could have been a Dubai on the Mediterranean. And we constantly hear that rhetoric, like uh, Trump tower would have been constructed in the heart yeah, of Dubai. Yeah, if Israel had never been created. And Gaza actually used to be relatively wealthy um, before Oslo. And Arafat would prefer to spend time there because it was nicer. There were seaside resorts. It's been deliberately no, been. systematically impoverished by the occupation. And one it's controlled not only from the eastern side, where it's surrounded by walls and fences, but also from the sea, 
so that the fisher the, the one of the traditional industries in gaza fishing has been driven into ruin and that when i'm in the gaza strip i often eat fish imported from alexandria egypt i've been on a fishing boat with fishermen in gaza it was turned back by the israeli navy at gunpoint before they could get any real fish any catch and during you know these assaults on gaza the israeli navy boats come in and you see them right out there on the sea firing shells just lobbing shells randomly into the city the bakker boys these uh the sons of a, a fishing family the bakker family in gaza city were slaughtered by an israeli navy ship in front of the international press because remember the hotel we stayed at in gaza in 2018 um they have a restaurant called roots and it, you're, you're sitting out there on the beach it's like pretty nice if you take the occupation out of it, all these reporters from the Guardian, AP, they were all sitting at that restaurant. All of a sudden, Israel lobs a shell onto the beach and blows up all these boys who the, the reporters had gotten to know because they would like fetch them things from the beach, slaughtered them. And so th that was in 2014. That was the first real scandal. So for the first time, the Al Qassam brigades have introduced a torpedo something to target those naval ships which are responsible for so many massacres in the gaza strip and which have destroyed the industry of fishing in gaza and here is a look at them bringing this torpedo into the field for the first time it's called the asif This is the propaganda video, but I'll show the actual video of them deploying it. It's a remote controlled torpedo. I don't think it struck its target and it says torpedo on it. You can see how advanced their military is and how they're just, you know, taking so much money from the people. They put this, they, they made a torpedo. It actually says torpedo on it. And this is what it looks like when they're bringing it into the field. Uh, one second and I'll tee it up and you'll see this is, you know, there's there's no way that this cost anything to do. It just took a little bit of ingenuity. It certainly doesn't cost as much as the Israeli naval ships and the um, cruiser class attack boats, which they're and dolphin submarines that they're gifted by Germany as part of Holocaust reparations. So here's them taking torpedo out onto the beach. This is from this week. So basically some guys walk a torpedo into the waves and then send it on its way. They don't have submarines. Their naval ships are actually converted fishing boats where they've had several infiltrations of Israeli territory at the Zakim naval base. Um, so, I mean, that pretty much provides the answer to, oh, they're stealing from their people to make this giant military. And the military is a people's military. As I said, it consists of many people who, young people I've interviewed there and met there who have lost family members who want to regain their dignity. And because that's Gaza. The Gaza, it really, you can't say it enough that it is a, it's a modern concentration camp. The people there have no, nothing, no future, no 
hope other than breaking the siege. I mean, any human being, especially if you believe in the American tradition, would relate to, to their struggle.